This is Tom Koslick, the head of municipal research and analytics at Hilltop Securities. Thank you everyone for joining us today for this 20th episode of our Hilltop Talks Politics and Finance podcast series for 2022. I'm so sorry that we have not posted podcasts since I believe the beginning of March. That coincided with the birth of my daughter, Lily. She was born back in March, and I have to say we've had a busy, busy summer to say the least, but we are back and we're looking forward to bringing more policy and public finance focused podcasts. So I want to mention also that during these Hilltop Talks podcast discussions, we speak with subject matter experts about topics that you know intersect the worlds of politics and finance at the federal, state and local levels in the U.S., We often concentrate on issues that are related to U.S. public finance and the municipal bond market. Today, we're going to discuss a topic, several topics, uh, in fact, that were the most important. I should say we're going to talk about public pensions and public pensions were the most important concern, according to municipal analysts, for several years before the COVID shutdowns. And I know I can say this for certain because I conducted annual polls that told us that pensions were at the top of that list for several years from and probably would have been for several years before that. But now, because of the strong equity market returns that occurred just after COVID and the substantial fiscal policy that flowed to state and local governments, it seems to a degree, it seems in some pockets of the market that it's and I don't know if I'm overstating it by saying it's a forgotten risk, but uh, it's just it, it seems to me that there are some folks who don't feel as though it's as important a influence on credit quality as what I believe it is and what uh, others believe it is. So to discuss the details of this very important credit and policy issue, we have today Tom Aaron from Moody's Investor Service. Tom, thanks so much for being here. Well, thanks very much for having me, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. And Tom has been at Moody's for about 12 years. And before that, he spent several years in city government. At Moody's, Tom does not necessarily cover a specific uh, public finance sector. Instead, he and his team have helped implement and maintain how it is that the Moody's Public Finance Group approaches pension risk. Uh, at, At least that's the general view of how it is that I see it. Tom, I'm wondering, First of all, if you could correct me, if I'm not describing that the right way, please correct me. But I'm also, if, if could you describe maybe a, a little more in depth for our listeners, what it is that you and your team do for the public finance group at Moody's? Sure. Uh, I think your summary is fairly accurate, Tom. You know, I, I've been dedicated to this topic for quite some time within our public finance group. But, you know, pensions touch not just one sector, as you correctly pointed out. They're an issue across state and local government primarily. But there's also some other sectors you know, that uh, are covered by our U.S. public finance group in which pensions and also other post-employment benefits, most commonly retiree health care, can be substantial credit factors. So one sector that comes to mind there would be, for example, mass transit. So you know, it, it is an issue and a big liability for credits sort of across the spectrum of U.S. public finance sectors. Um, and in, in my role, you know, I, I really uh, help to oversee and implement a lot of the ways in, in which we gauge pension risk to uh, the issuers that we're rating. And uh, what I could sort of summarize as, you know, our view, which is that while our ratings speak to the credit quality of the debt that we're rating, nevertheless, pensions are such an important focus for us because in many cases, they are the largest 
liability on a given entity's balance sheet, not all, but but in, in many cases. And you know the few uh, and rare examples of, say, municipal bankruptcy, oftentimes the pensions end up uh, recovering better than the bonds. So mm-hmm. for and, and I think that leads us to uh, sort of an important way I would summarize the pension issue for us as credit analysts of debt, which is that if the pensions become truly unaffordable for a government, the debt is likely unaffordable as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm going back to 2009 when Pew, for a lot of folks, I think brought pub- the public pension issue uh, to the forefront of the market when they wrote the piece that was titled The Trillion Dollar Gap. And they were focusing, if I remember correctly, on just state government, not state and local. But that, that trillion dollar gap report from 2009 really uh, started to get folks focused on public sector pensions. I know you address kind of what it is that I'm referring to in your June uh, 22nd report pension liabilities to decline due to higher interest rates, but assets are losing ground. But I was wondering if you could update our listeners on where we are now in terms of funded ratios, your adjusted net pension liabilities, now that we're two and a half years after COVID began. Then the next thing I'm going to ask you about is to comment on how it is that landscape very well could shift because of interest rates. But for right now, if you could address where we where we were in kind of 09, kind of pre-COVID, and now where we are in August of 22. Sure. Uh, so as you know, I think you're aware and many of your listeners may be aware, sort of the even sizing pensions uh, is a complex topic and one that garners uh, a lot of debate uh, amongst various market participants, academics, accountants and actuaries and so forth. And uh, we at Moody's tend to have a view that is pretty similar to that of the Federal Reserve in that the way that we size the liabilities is based upon the application of a discount rate that is basically tied to high grade corporate bonds. So until recently, you know, we had been you know, even in some cases below 3% in terms of the discount rates that we were applying uh, recently, uh, as as no doubt you're aware, interest rates have risen and so has our discount rate that we're applying. Uh, the Federal Reserve for some time now uh, has applied a 4% discount rate over a multi-year period. And, you know, so that's produced some estimates in their report entitled the Financial Accounts of the United States that really uh, are pegged pretty pretty closely to the way that we view the obligations. And so the most recent uh, report that they have out, as of the, the time you and I are recording this, they, they sized state and local government unfunded pensions at about $3.8 trillion. So, you know, that in comparison to the amount of state and local government debt securities outstanding, again, according to the Fed, was only $3.2 trillion. So I think that's a, an interesting way to sort of scale the issue uh, is that, you know, earlier this year that for, you know, in aggregate state and local governments had more unfunded pension liabilities uh, than debts outstanding. And that is, you know, really on the heels of uh, what were really the single best year of investment returns that many pension funds experienced. And that was during the fiscal year that ended June 30, 2021. 
what has transpired since then uh, has been you know some market turbulence which really drove assets down so most u.s public pension systems are right now reporting negative returns for their fiscal year that ended june 30 2022. you know what we're seeing is on the sort of best side uh, some systems are getting close to zero so you know kind of in the negative one to negative two percent range and then on kind of the more negative side we're seeing systems report in the negative high single digits to even um, you know uh, breaking into negative double digits so say you know negative seven negative eight ranging even into negative 10 territory for the for the fiscal year and you know the reason that investment returns matter so much uh, you know for pension systems is really a couplefold from a balance sheet perspective it's a tremendous amount of assets that are being uh, that, that are set aside uh, again referring to the federal reserve numbers there uh, they pegged at you know a little about 5.8 trillion dollars of us public pension assets and you can think of those on the balance sheet as funded liabilities right so to the extent there are asset losses that takes the current uh, unfunded liability that exists and then you know some liabilities that previously were funded uh, all of a sudden become new unfunded liabilities so uh, it compared to the size and scale of some municipal governments their pension assets themselves are quite substantial and they happen to be invested pretty heavily in you know assets that are reaching to generate pretty substantial returns so we're talking about pretty heavy public equity allocations as well as uh, heavy allocations to alternatives, um, you know, su such as private equity, real estate, um, and so forth, and and pretty relatively low allocations to, uh, you know, what you might consider to be less volatile assets, such as, such as high-grade fixed-income securities. So, so risky, risky. There's a riskier asset allocation now than compared to the 70s and 80s, for example. Absolutely. And uh, earlier this year, we actually put a report out in, in combination with our colleagues that look at uh, insurance companies, uh, for example, life insurers. And if you think about life insurers, it's a really interesting comparison because their mandate is, is actually somewhat similar to a U.S. public pension fund. They're managing assets you know, against what are long-term uh, liabilities that are basically future payouts, right? And what we you know discovered looking at, at a uh, comparison over time is that U.S. public pension fund allocations used to be a lot closer in resemblance to those of U.S. life insurers, but certainly over time uh, have migrated far more into asset classes carrying higher volatility risk, like I mentioned earlier, the public equities and the alternatives. So one of the things that you mentioned, and I was going to mention this a little later, but I'll mention it now because it's a good segue based on what you were just talking about, because you mentioned how it is the way that you treat uh, liabilities is very similar to how it is that the Fed treats liabilities. And that brings up, in my mind, you know, the fact that the Boston College Retirement Center just published a week or so ago their 2022 update for, pub for their public pension uh, database. And their funded ratio is, it was up to in the high 70% uh, level last year because of the strong equity market returns but it's back down to 74%. It was 73% in 2019. So it's the, the, that funded ratio is back down basically where it was in 2019. That being said, one of the reasons why that funded ratio, and I don't that you don't necessarily publish funded ratios, but the Federal Reserve funded ratio 
was 53% because, as you mentioned, they use a lower discount rate. And based on the first quarter of the first quarter of this year, the Fed's funded ratio is at 60%. So um, I just wanted to mention that uh, because I thought that that was important to mention because of how it is that and how big of a difference those funded ratios look like when you use a lower discount rate. That being said, one of the reasons why that funded ratio the, that the Fed is using is higher, 60% compared to the 53% that they were of where it was in 2019, is just because interest rates have risen significantly in the past year, year and a half. Well, uh, you know, certainly, and, and, and of course, the other side of the ledger, assets matter as, as well. But, you know, uh, to to your point in the way that we value the obligations, which again is really uh, fundamentally tied to double A uh, high grade corporate bond interest rate, we saw a substantial increase. Um, so you know when we were sub three uh, percent in fiscal's 2020 and 2021, we're now uh, well above four percent. So mm-hmm. um, you know we 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 had a substantial increase uh, in in the interest rates and it sort of created this odd dynamic when you're talking about year over year experience in that we had, I, I spoke earlier about the fact that US public pension funds are posting negative returns uh, for fiscal year 2022. And yet, you know, if you look at the way we size the unfunded obligations, we're saying that the unfunded liabilities are actually coming down and pretty materially. And that's because of that significant in, increase in interest rates. So. You know, it, it is kind of an, an odd dynamic to think about, but, you know, the way that I could best describe to maybe just think about how that is or why it is, is, you know, think about um, an example where, you know, the the cost to a government, if they wanted to offload their pension obligation, say to an insurance company, uh, you know, the cost of that transaction is heavily based upon prevailing market interest rates. And uh, it's not to say that we expect you know governments to be doing this in mass or anything, but um, you know really that's that's kind of the fundamental way to think about uh, our point in time measurement of the unfunded liabilities. And so certainly, uh, you know what what happens with higher interest rates is lower unfunded liabilities. Again, as a point in time measurement, uh, in our view. Mm-hmm. But you know the the other dynamic, of course, is the near term, and that's where the asset experience comes into play a bit more. And with the investment losses, uh, you know, the way that I, I, I'm sort of thinking about this is that we had this huge boom in 2021, and then 2022 has come close to basically wiping a lot of that out. So um, you referenced kind of going back to 2020 in one of your earlier comments, and, and I wholeheartedly agree with that, especially as it pertains to the near-term condition of U.S. public pension funds. Basically, they had this substantial improvement due to the huge returns in 21, and now we're back uh, with much of that wiped out to, to about where things were in 2020. Right. So one of the one of the newer developments is related to inflation, especially this year. Uh, w- what impact do you think that the record inflation that we're seeing, whether or not it's record even higher than what high, a higher level of inflation? Than what we've seen in previous years. How do you expect that to continue to impact uh, the asset liability dynamic that we're talking about? Especially considering, I think you know, the, one of the things that the Fed has communicated to the market over just over the last you know week or two is that uh, folks should be expecting that this 
relatively higher interest rate environment is something that we should expect to be uh, expect to exist not just for the rest of 2022, but maybe even in 2023. Yeah, so uh, that is certainly, uh, you know, I, I would say probably the topic of the year, right? Inflation. And um, there's really two particular ways that we see inflation uh, affecting pension risk for governments. And the first is actually uh, through something that that is quite straightforward, and that is uh, new labor agreements with their employees. So, you know, ultimately the way that an employee's pension gets determined is usually based upon their uh, final salary or final average salary uh, towards the end of their career times, you know, a benefit multiplier and then also times the number of years they work. So uh, to the extent that, you know, salaries are rising very rapidly, uh, what that's doing is that's pushing up those projected uh, final average salaries and causing um, uh, higher accrued liabilities. So that's just sort of one way when you sort of think about the downstream effects of something as seemingly straightforward as a new labor contract or, uh, you know, raises that governments may be awarding to their employees is that to the extent those really exceed the amounts uh, assumed by their actuaries that can actually generate new unfunded liabilities because they're accruing uh, liabilities at a more rapid pace. So, um, you know, and to the extent that inflation is driving, um, you know, basically higher demands for uh, wage growth by employees uh, with, you know, their employer governments, that's sort of pension risk number one uh, tied to inflation. Uh, the second is actually uh, related to cost of living adjustments or COLAs as they're commonly referred to. And, you know, uh, uh, the COLA is a very interesting aspect of pensions because in many states it's it's been viewed as legally distinct from sort of what you could call the core annuity or the core benefit. And so it's been an area that many state and local governments have focused on in, you know, the past decade plus as a means to um, you know, lower their unfunded pension liabilities and, and sort of bring their pension funds into better health. And uh, we saw in one case already where there had previously been a suspension of COLAs in a statewide teacher pension system uh, that that retirement board has since uh, revisited that and, and granted, um, you know, uh, a, a partial restoration of some of the, the COLAs that had been cut. Um, we all so that's that's actually occurred in a couple states already. So um, you know that that's just sort of something to watch because uh, while it's been a, a focus area of opportunity in the past for lowering liabilities, uh, it's also now an area where retirees, um, certainly from a you know kind of political standpoint, um, you know maybe really you know raising concern about the purchasing power of their pension not keeping pace with inflation. Um, and, you know, that's still uh, really a, a potentially powerful political constituency. So is it going to be so do you think it's going to be uh, by and large a positive or a negative from a bigger picture credit perspective that the uh, higher interest rate environment is going to have on credit quality for state and local governments? Uh, what do you think? Well, I, I think it's it's actually mixed and it's going to depend upon uh, a lot of individual circumstances of a particular government. Uh, certainly those where, you know, the long term pension obligation is a major drag or has been a major drag on credit quality. As I mentioned earlier, we actually view uh, the unfunded liability as falling 
pretty materially from from um, higher interest rates. So at least in that aspect, uh, certainly that that helps. Um, but you know, on the flip side, um, and you kind of pull this into inflation, um, you know, the revenue composition of governments is not uniform. And there are certainly some governments uh, that have a bit better of a hedge on their revenues as it pertains to inflation. So those, you know, maybe with a, a better, or I shouldn't say better, but just a greater uh, dependence on revenue streams, say from sales taxes or from income taxes, which uh, while not completely immune from inflation, uh, at least, you know, definitely will move up a bit um, because as prices go up, so too does the, the the revenue stream, at least to the extent that consumers, for example, don't pull back uh, on their purchasing. Uh, but then, you know, on the flip side where you have maybe um, governments without sort of that revenue hedge, inflation is then really concentrating on the expenditure side of the ledger for them. Um, you know, so municipalities, of course, are exposed to the price of diesel. They're exposed to uh, construction costs. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, they're exposed to, uh, you know, the need to compensate employees and uh, employees that are facing uh, inflation pressure on, on their own household budget, uh, of course, are going to, to, you know, do their best to negotiate higher wages to compensate for that. So, uh, you know, it, the, the answer is really a bit of a mixed bag and mm -hmm. the individual circumstances of a government are going to dictate, you know, I think, you know, whether they they can weather this easily or, you know, may have uh, a bit bumpier of a ride. Yeah, one of the things that y your group calculate, you one of I think one of your group, one of the one of the things that the folks in your group help calculate are tread water levels for some of the uh, entities that you cover. And one of the th I'm wondering and maybe the answer is the same as the previous question. Maybe the answer is just it depends. But I'm wondering if there is a a likelihood that tread water levels could go down in situations because of the interest rate environment. You know, if there's a situation where um, on paper it looks like they issue uh, participants don't need to fund as much because interest rates are rising. But then that, if anything, that could make it so. But then if interest rates go down, you know, even if it's in six months or 12 months to where kind of they were a year, year and a half ago or two years ago, and they issuers believe that the amount of money that they're going to have to contribute is going to be more like it was when interest rates are higher, then they might have a, uh, a harder time uh, putting that into their budget. And then that tre the tread water numbers could end up decreasing. I'm not sure if that's a, a realistic scenario or not, but uh, do you, is the potential of what it is that could happen with the tread water levels, is the answer a mixed bag also, or is there a risk that these tread water levels could, after if, in, if and when interest rates go down again, it, they could, those tread water levels could um, suffer? So I guess, uh, one thing to start is just uh, in case there's anyone in the audience that doesn't know what what our tread water indicator is, it's it's uh, a calculation we make to calculate what a government has to put in to its pension system in a given year to prevent its unfunded liability from growing. And uh, a difference between that and um, some of the balance sheet obligations we talked about earlier 
is that we use the discount rate that is reported by the government. We don't do an adjustment there. And so the discount rate driving those tread water indicators is really tied to their assumed rate of return on pension assets. And, and the reason we do that is because that's just a, a, a much better and more realistic tie to the way that they set their contribution requirements, uh, you know, especially if they're if they're paying an actuarially determined contribution, for example. So interest rate fluctuations, while they really affect our point in time balance sheet measurements, are not having uh, an effect on the reported liabilities and thus not directly affecting our tread water indicators. What's driving shifts in the tread water indicators uh, far more greatly are the investment returns of the pension funds. So what we really have observed is the huge gains of 2021 basically caused tread water indicators in the subsequent year to drop. And then the reverse is basically uh, occurring for 2023 because you had investment losses in 2022. And so that's causing those tread water indicators to uh, basically uh, go right back up. And so really it's it's a, it's a bit of a wash and, and sort of returning to you know where we saw things as of 2020. And I think largely due to um, not only you know the dynamic of the two years of investment returns kind of offsetting each other, but then you also have to consider that uh, governments and their actuaries, uh, they use a lot of uh, techniques to basically smooth out contribution volatility. They do that through asset smoothing uh, as well as the amortization of unfunded liabilities that is built into their contribution requirements. So basically this two year, um, you know, kind of volatile period with one really good year and then a bad year is kind of going to even out as far as uh, the, the contribution requirements and then also our tread water indicators. Okay. There have been a couple of uh, really important pension developments or updates in recent weeks. You've mentioned uh, a couple of times the uh, returns, uh, the 630 returns, uh, also, that I mentioned that Boston uh, College Retirement Report. I always like to see uh, that because I think that's an important update. What do you think is going to be the most important indicator, or what are you most looking for that's going to inform you for the rest of this year? That that's going to help you decide the potential direction of where pension plan pension plans and liabilities are likely to go. Uh, I think first and foremost is going to be market returns. So we've talked a lot about that already, but uh, mm -hmm. in terms of what we're seeing currently, I think that is the single biggest uh, determinant. Now, if you had asked me that uh, sort of in the wake of the pandemic, I would have said government contribution discipline. Um, but you know what we have observed in light of the strong fiscal position of many state and local governments, bolstered by you know strong revenue growth as well as a lot of federal aid. You know, governments really have not pulled back on their pension contributions, um, you know, for their own budget relief. Uh, in fact, it's kind of been the opposite in most they cases. They haven't needed to, right. They haven't needed to, right. And, and in fact, you've seen a couple governments that, you know, are historically associated with, um, you know, pension challenges have actually boosted their pension contributions, kind of taking advantage of the strong fiscal position. So uh, as long as sort of that remains the status quo that the the contribution discipline uh, remains i'd say the the real key to watch is not only the investment returns but then also i think some of the downstream effects of inflation that we discussed previously okay because that one of the things that i was going to ask you is how how is it that you think state and local governments are approaching their the importance of funding their plans 
kind of post-COVID compared to post-Great Recession. So that's kind of a good lead into what it is that you were seeing after the Great Recession versus what's happening now and maybe even what you're what is it you're expecting to happen kind of in next year maybe the year after with regard to uh funding discipline yes now, now uh at least based on what we see now i think that uh, all signs point to the continuation of um you know largely um you know pretty strong contribution discipline a, a lot of the um you know, for lack of a better description, can kicking moves we saw with contributions after the Great Recession. Um, I think there have been some lessons learned uh, about how, you know, pensions, uh, especially when you're assuming a 7% rate of return, if you if, if you forego pension contributions, you can look at it mathematically as equivalent to deficit borrowing at a 7% interest rate, right? And, and so, you know, I think there have been some lessons learned from that. Um, and, you know, unless the the current fiscal picture changes dramatically, I, at least right now, I think all signs point to pretty strong contribu- contribution discipline. It's not to say uh, that it's guaranteed, of course, but uh, for now, I'd say that's my baseline. Okay. What's happening in the Virgin Islands? At the end of last year, I remember reading a report that, that came from Moody's that indicated that they were pretty close. I mean, within just a couple of years of depleting the assets in their public pension plan. Where is that now? Well, uh, there's been a lot of developments this year um, for uh, the Virgin Islands, and and, and it's an issue where uh, pensions are a front and center credit issue. As you mentioned, uh, it's a severely underfunded pension system, uh, was projected to uh, deplete its assets as early as 2024. And, you know, in our view, if that happens, it's highly likely that that would force uh, that type of scenario would force a debt restructuring uh, just because the costs to pay as you go, meaning pay the retiree benefits directly from the budget, um, you know, we we think would be uh, highly likely that that would not be affordable for the government. Uh, And and so that would likely uh, drive a restructuring. Now, uh, in April of this year, they executed a refinancing transaction that really bought them some time. It, it, it pushed out some debt service and they, they used some capitalized interest, basically the idea being generate a lot of upfront resources uh, to infuse into the pension system. And, you know, in our view, that that certainly did buy the pension system some time uh, and some much needed upfront resource. Now, even just in, in recent days, there's been an announcement uh, sort of that the, the rate uh, the island will receive on um, some of the, the matching fund rum, rum tax revenues that, that it relies on uh, is declining. Um, so certainly that, that kind of adds to the challenge uh, upon which that refinancing transaction was predicated. But uh, nevertheless, you know, that's a scenario where uh, pensions are an absolute key credit driver and uh, you know the the Virgin Islands will have to continue to navigate a way to uh, get money into that retirement system every year uh, to prevent the assets from you know really uh, creating a a likely restructuring scenario. Mm-hmm. The last thing that I wanted to ask you has to do with pension obligation bonds. As rates were rising, and as returns were pretty hefty uh, towards the beginning of the COVID shutdown kind of period, the amount of pension obligation bond issuance really rose. It doesn't seem to be as attractive right now, 
but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how it is that Moody's, from a credit perspective, looks at pension obligation bonds. Sure. So I, I agree entirely with your synopsis there of, of the past couple of years uh, of market activity. And, you know, we view pension bonds uh, as it pertains to credit as really credit neutral at best. You know, if you think about the way that what most of the pension bond transactions are designed to do, it's to take what is currently an unfunded pension liability, convert it into a debt liability in the hopes that the the invested proceeds from the bonds, you know, that that the pension system will out earn uh, the interest rate that the government is paying on the bonds. But, um, you know, even in a low rate environment, uh, right, while, you know, the government as the borrower in a pension bond transaction certainly appears to benefit from lower interest rates, uh, then when you turn around and you have the pension fund as an investor of the proceeds from that bond transaction, they're facing the very same interest rates as an investor and have to work around that. So in short, in order to out earn the interest rate paid by the government, they're going to have to accept uh, some risk. Um, and, you know, that means that basically, you know, there there is certainly a risk that the transaction may not pan out. And it, it's the way to think about it is very similar to any type of portfolio leveraging in that both the upside and the downside are exacerbated. So, um, you know, we definitely do not view them uh, as, you know, a, a sort of panacea. There's really no uh, arbitrage to be had, you know, and it's not to say they can't work out or, or they never will. Um, but it's also to say that if they don't, uh, that can leave the government in an even more difficult position because uh, they not only may have, you know, lost the proceeds, uh, for example, but then they also still have to pay back the bonds. Yeah, I think that we could probably have a podcast just about pension obligation bonds and the iterations of them. <laughs> <laughs> and Tom, we're, we definitely want to have you back to talk about uh, some pension 101, pension basics like we've talked about before, and we will do that. But for now, we haven't just exhausted our time. We have run well over. But thank you for joining us. We're really happy you could spend some time with us. Well, thanks so much for having me, Tom. This was uh, really a pleasure to join. And thanks very much to all of you who tuned in and downloaded our recording today. We look forward to bringing you more color in the future related to the topics that intersect the world of politics, finance, and public finance. This has been Tom Koslick from Hilltop Securities. Thanks for listening to Hilltop Talks, a Hilltop Securities podcast where we navigate the impact of politics and finance on the financial markets. For those interested, you can view our Hilltop Securities economic and municipal commentary by visiting hilltopsecurities.com backslash municipal dash commentary and hilltopsecurities.com backslash economic dash commentary. You can also follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again, everyone, for subscribing, tuning in, and participating. We look forward to bringing you more color in the future on topics that intersect both the world of politics and finance. This has been Tom Koslick at Hilltop Securities. 
This communication is intended for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute legal or investment advice, nor is it an offer or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any investment or other specific product or service. Financial transactions may be dependent upon many factors such as, but not limited to, interest rates, tax rates, supply, and change in laws, rules and regulations, as well as changes in credit quality and rating agency considerations. The effect of such changes in such assumptions may be material and could affect the projected results. Any outcome or result Hilltop Securities or any of its employees may have achieved on behalf of our clients in previous matters does not necessarily indicate similar results can be obtained in the future for current or potential clients. Hilltop Securities makes no claim the use of this communication will assure a successful outcome. For additional information, comments, or questions, please contact Hilltop Securities, Inc. Hilltop Securities is a wholly owned subsidiary of Hilltop Holdings, New York Stock Exchange, ticker symbol HTH. Hilltop Securities is located at 717 North Harwood Street, Dallas, Texas, 75201. Phone number 833-4-HILLTOP, H-I-L-L-T-O-P, and is a member of the New York Stock Exchange, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and the Securities Investor Protection Corporation.